your Bibles. Uh, make your way to John chapter 9. John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament, comes right for the book of Acts. <clears throat> for anyone who may be visiting with us this morning, we're just as a reminder, we're in the midst of this series called Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And what we're doing is we're doing our best possible way of putting together the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're trying to put them together as chronologically as possible so we can get the full picture and meaning of Jesus' life, his ministry, his miracles, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ultimate ascension, and his promise that he will return for his people. If you have been here before, then you are probably familiar with the fact that normally when uh, we do a come to the sermon portion, we usually take a clump of Scripture and we expand it and we dive into it and, and we learn what is being said. And so if you're looking behind me, you can see that we're going to be doing a whole chapter this morning. And some of you may be thinking, well, how long are we going to be here, Pastor? Well, I saw many posts on Facebook saying that we got an extra hour, so I get an extra hour. So... <laughs> Plus, there's, most of us, there's a game already on that we don't really care about anyway. So yeah. if I get any abnormal amens, like it doesn't really fit what's being said, then I know what you're actually doing on your phone. I'm just going to let that be out there right now. Um, originally, I, I thought we would take this chapter in clumps. I actually had it originally divided up into three different clumps that we would walk through it. Um, but God woke me up on Thursday morning about 5 o'clock. This is before the time change. And really pressed it upon my heart that we need to take the whole chapter. And what is taking place with the healing when Jesus heals a blind man. This individual after the healing is going to be encountered by people that know him. He's going to be encountered by people who respect that he is to respect. He's going to be challenged by his own family. Uh, people that could inflict harm upon him. Ultimately, he's going to be challenged by the one who truly loved him. And that is our focus this morning is the challenges we will face. And when I say the challenges we face, what I mean by that is the challenges as God's people that we are going to face when we live for the gospel and we live for the word of God and we have conviction about the word of God. When we live and share our testimony and live out our faith and belief, you are going to face challenges. There are going to be challenges that are going to emerge from all around you if we are living God's word out and being a light into a world that is covered in darkness. And what we see is the challenges that this particular individual had after he has an encounter with Jesus and is completely transformed by the power of Jesus, as many of us have been as we've come to faith and have found our salvation, the gift of eternal life, is that there are going to be challenges that are going to emerge. We're going to not read the entire chapter. We're going to point out a couple passages of Scripture, so I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open or whatever you're reading the Word of God on, because I'll mention a verse or two and we'll jump to that. But we will read some Scripture from this verse or from this chapter just to understand what is being said, what is happening. And so let's build the context of the situation, which begins in verse 1 and runs through verse 7. And the Word of the Lord says, As he, and this is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed 
and came back seeing. Let's pray and we'll get into this. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your blessings, your faithfulness to us, that your goodness overwhelms us and there's times that we are fully aware of it and times that we are blinded to it. But knowing that your hand is upon us, we have found your favor simply because we have found salvation in your son and placed our faith in his work. Father, I pray in this time that you forgive us where we have failed you, be it today or this past week, that your glory would be the only thing on display here this morning. I pray your will and kingdom be done in each and every life that our hearts will be receptive to what your spirit is laying before us through your word and you just open it up. Let us have an understanding as you did with your disciples through the power of your spirit. Lord, let us be taught, corrected, reproved, trained for righteousness in this time. And pray us in the name of Jesus, amen. Coming into chapter 9, I want us again to build a little more context before we get into the verses we read and what sets up the healing and the reaction to the healing. This particular event is recorded only within the Gospel of John. Now, Jesus has healed other blind people in his ministry. And within John's Gospel, what we've been looking at the last couple months is that this is tied to the Feast of Booths, which began back in John chapter 7. And just a reminder, throughout the festival, Jesus has gone to the temple and he has been revealing himself to the crowds that were gathered at the temple. And the way he did it is he used elements of that particular festival to reveal himself to the people. For example, every morning... Uh, The priest would take water from the pool of Siloam, which is in our text this morning. He would carry the water through the streets. He would come into the temple, and then he would pour the water into, into a silver basin. The water was a representation about how God provided for the Jewish people through the wilderness wanderings. He continued to provide them water, and it was to remind the people that God continued to provide for them. Then the priest would take a a pitcher of wine. He would pour it into a separate silver basin. And it was a reminder to God's people that God would one day pour out his spirit upon his people and he would dwell in their midst. And it's in the midst of this situation, in the middle of the festival, in John chapter 7, Jesus makes the first proclamation. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water water. Then on the last night of this particular festival, Jesus once again goes to the temple. The temple is lit up with lanterns and candles all around, and Jesus makes his proclamation as the Jewish people remind him that God guided them in the wilderness. He continued not only to provide for them, but he continued to allow his presence to be in their midst. And as the lanterns are lit, as the candles are lit in the temple, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. With these two great proclamations about being living water in the light of the world, we found in John chapter 8 that the crowds began to get divided about who Jesus was. We're told in verse 13 or verse 30 that many began to believe in Jesus. They began to believe in what he was saying, that he was more than just a regular man. But then we're also told in John chapter 8 there were still many who wanted to kill him. latter part of John chapter 8, Jesus addressed those individuals who had put their faith into him. And we don't know what sort of faith that was because it kind of turns on them, but they're still trying to understand, who are you, 
Jesus. And so at this point in time, when he has some people that are kind of hooked, wanting to put their faith in him, he comes right out with it in verse 58. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, for Abraham was, I am. And it's at this moment, the crowds who were still listening to Jesus could not deny what he was saying. And those who had put some sort of belief in Jesus and what that belief was, the Bible doesn't tell us. At this statement, they picked up stones to throw at him. The final part of verse 59, which leads us into chapter 9, we're told Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now that particular statement in verse 59 could be misunderstood by a lot of people. Some people take it that Jesus was afraid, but Jesus was not afraid. It's tying back to many uh, statements that we read from John 7 and John 8 where it is said that it was not his time. I mean, it was not Jesus' time to be taken by the people, but Jesus knew that his time was in fact coming. He did not flee from the crowds in fear. He left because the ultimate time of his sacrifice had not yet arrived. The religious leaders and the crowds who had this murderous intention towards Jesus may have thought they were in control, but they were not. Everything was going to happen according to the Father's time. And what a blessing we can know that that's the exact same thing that happens in our life. Everything happens according to the Father's time and the Father's purpose. Because most of us like to know timing of events, at least I, I do. The timing event in chapter 9 would have taken place after the sun had set. It had become dark. To place this particular moment here in chapter 9 about 5 or 6 o'clock at night, it would not be much different than when the sun's going to set this evening, about 5 or 6 o'clock at night. So it's nighttime, which would make it easy for Jesus to kind of slip out through the crowds without being noticed. We can know Jesus wasn't running away. He wasn't in a hurry, and the reason we can know that is we come into chapter 9. He passed by, and he saw a blind man from birth. I'm told later in this chapter, this blind man is a beggar. Now, if Jesus was in a hurry, is he, if, if, if he was afraid of the crowds, then he wouldn't have taken the time to stop to interact with this blind man who was most likely outside of the temple begging for money and ends meet from the people who would come in and out. Jesus stops and he addresses him. Now, we don't know how the disciples knew about this man being born blind from birth. Maybe Jesus let them know on it when they walked by. Perhaps he said something to them. Though they're always with Jesus, the disciples, it's not until chapter 9 that they finally reappear. When we read about Jesus doing teachings and ministries, we always have to assume just because the disciples aren't there doesn't mean they aren't with him unless it is a particular time where Jesus has sent them out to do the ministry. But the disciples finally reappear within the Gospel of John because they have a question for Jesus, and it comes in verse 2. Rabbi, rabbi means teacher. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, to understand the question that they're posing towards Jesus, we have to understand the Jewish teachings, which they would have been brought up learning. The Jewish leaders taught that if an individual had some sort of handicap or hardship within their life, it is because God was punishing them for their sin. You might call this the Job theology. 
If you remember the book of Job in the Old Testament, Job comes upon hardship. His entire family dies except his wife who kind of just wants him to die at that moment in time. He's got things all over his body, and then he has three wonderful friends to show up to give him encouragement. And they tell him, Job, you know the reason you're in this situation is because you have sinned against God, you need to beg for forgiveness, you need to repent and return back to God, and then all things will be well again. They believe God was punishing Job. But if you read Job from the beginning, you know that Job only found himself in the situation he was in is because God allowed or permitted Satan to test Job's allegiance and to test Job's righteousness. I shared this story numerous years ago here. I encountered this mentality with a deacon at one point in time. There was a time in our family, our kids were still young, our car broke down, there were things in the house that were ceasing to work. It seemed like we were all getting sick at the same time. And I had a deacon come up to me in that moment and say, hey, pastor, are you tithing? He actually assumed because things were going bad, we must have been doing something wrong. And that's kind of an odd question because here's the thing, if we could tithe or pay off God to guarantee only good things would happen, I guarantee you this, more people would tithe. But tithing isn't an insurance plan. It's because we are trusting that God will continue to provide. Remember, there's a lot of people that have the mentality of the question from verse 2. There are even some believers who believe that if you do good things, then good things will happen. But if you slip up, then God is going to bring punishment. He's going to bring judgment. And yes, God disciplines us because he loves us. But a lot of people can believe that the reason I'm going through this hardship is because there's something I've done against God and he's, he's, he's punishing me for it. But you have to understand, this is not a biblical understanding of the situation. This mentality is actually attached to Hinduism and Buddhism. It is a karma theology that if you do good things, then good things will happen. But if you do bad things, then bad things will happen. The reality of Scripture and what God teaches is that we should do good things, but not with the mentality or the heart that I'm just trying to keep God off my back. But I'm going to do good things because I understand that God loves me and I'm going to respond to the love of God. So back to this question. Disciples grew up with this thought process. And they come to Jesus asking him to explain it, asking him to teach them what this could possibly mean. And so for the Jewish teaching, it it came from two different things. First, the Jewish leaders would teach the young Jewish boys that a baby could actually sin while in the mother's womb, which would lead to the handicap or hardship of that child. And they derived that teaching from Genesis chapter 25 when Jacob and Esau wrestled or struggled in the womb and Jacob ended up being blessed while Esau missed the blessing of the father. The funny thing about that is Jacob's name, which we return to Israel, meant wrestling with God. So I wonder who started the wrestling match in the womb. The second place the Jewish people took it from was from actually the second commandment found in the book of Exodus. And in this case, it was not the child in the womb that sinned, but it was the parents that sinned, most likely practicing some form of idolatry. And it says that God was visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. 
And so this is where the disciples come from. Jesus, this is what we've been taught. So who sinned? Was it him or the parents for him to be in this sort of situation? And notice Jesus' response in verse 3. It's not that this man sinned or his parents. Now, he's not saying in that moment that this man was without sin or his parents were without sin. They're asking for the reason, the cause for the man's blindness. So it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And this is what Jesus is kind of saying. I'll paraphrase. Sometimes these things just happen. Sometimes hardships and bad things come upon good people. But, he tells his disciple, in this particular case with this blind man, this man was born this way so that the glory and grace of God could be revealed. Before we get into the miracle itself, I want us to notice a key part of this which comes out of verse 1. He, being Jesus, saw a blind man from birth. We can read over that real quickly. Oh, he saw him. But the word saw there in the Greek means that he noticed him. Here's this man who would be sitting on the road, most likely outside the temple, holding out his, his hands, hoping for someone to give him money. And sometimes I imagine he would because that would be his way to survive in life. But I imagine there would be people like us today, when we see someone begging on a corner, we just don't make eye contact. Make sure the window's rolled up. You know, let's get through the stoplight as quick as possible. But Jesus noticed this man who many people would avoid. He wasn't going to avoid this situation. And we find this throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus notices the people who are hurting and who are overlooked. And so if we want to be like Jesus, I just want to be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? We did a great example right here in verse 1. Notice the people that God has brought into our life that are hurting, that are being overlooked, and then give them our time. Notice I didn't say give them your money, though if you feel impressed upon the heart to do so, then do that. But give them your attention. Let individuals who are hurting and who are being overlooked know that we see them not in their predicament, but we see them as an individual who is made in the image of God and who is worthy of the love of God. The phrase night is coming in verse 4. Is the way Jesus is speaking of the time of his crucifixion when he is no longer going to be with his disciples for a period of time of three days and three nights. And in that time... There was going to be no working for the kingdom of God. There was going to be no gospel being preached. The disciples in that time would be hiding in fear. But here's the good news. Jesus would rise from the grave, and ultimately he would send his Holy Spirit upon all who believe. And then we, who have accepted Jesus Christ and been given the Spirit, we are told in Scripture we are now the light in the world, as Jesus was once only the light of the world. After correcting his disciples... Jesus begins the miracle, and it's kind of gross. Talked about spit zone. He hawks a Lord loogie. Save your spit. Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful about this. Verse 6, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. How much spit do you think he had to hack out? That's, That's gross. Yeah, but I mean... 
we would say it's gross today, but this isn't the first time that Jesus spat on somebody to heal them. In our day, we see considered taboo or disgusting. And then Jesus takes this mud puddle of spit and he forms mud and he puts it on this man's eyes. But what it tells us is that every aspect of Jesus has healing qualities. His robe, a woman once said, if I just touch the hem of his robe, I will be healed. His words, he sometimes just said the word and someone would be healed. His touch, he would touch people no one else would want to touch like the lepers. And yes, his spit brought healing. What's also interesting about this miracle is notice the blind man doesn't ask for healing. Matter of fact, Jesus doesn't even take the time to ask the blind man, hey, would you want to be healed? Jesus doesn't ask this man, do you believe I can heal you? Jesus just does something for this man which reveals the grace of God. God's grace isn't something we deserve. It's unmerited favor. That's why it's grace. And God's grace is giving, given freely, and the proof of that is found in our salvation. It's something we did not deserve, we could not earn, we could not work for, but God gifted it. Notice, Jesus gives the blind man simple instructions. He's still blind at this moment. His eyes are covered in Savior spit mud. And he tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash himself clean. It's the same pool they've been using this whole week of the Feast of Booths. Now John gives us a little inside information in verse 7. That the pool of Siloam means scent. So Jesus sent the blind man to the scent pool. And as a result of this healing, the blind man is going to be sent to three different parties to deliver his testimony. The greatness of this miracle, when we combine it with chapter 7 and 8 of the Gospel of John, is in chapter 7 and 8, the crowds and the Pharisees, even those who had somewhat of a belief in Jesus, they kept asking him questions. They kept wanting him to define something, define who you are, why are you doing what you're doing. But we find this blind man asking no questions. He simply obeyed the instructions of Jesus Christ. Blind man is a great example of what we're called to do. Simply obey what Christ, what God, what the Holy Spirit has laid upon our hearts. It's what Jesus has been trying to tell the crowds in 7 and 8. Abide in me. Trust in me. Keep my word. Believe in me. Obey my word. And this is where the story gets interesting. Verse 7, it says that he went, he washed, and he came back seeing. We're not exactly told where he came back to, but verse 8 seems to imply he went back home. And can you imagine, just place ourselves in this individual situation. He is seeing things for the very first time in his life. Because we're told he's a man, he's a grown-up of some age, we're going to find that out even more when his parents come on the scene. But he's seen people for the first time, people he's only been able to hear. He's seen buildings, he's seen the stars at night. I imagine he's walking down the streets in all of what he's going to, all he's taking in through his eyes, and he goes home. 
And I hope that if we had an individual in our life who had been miraculously healed from some sort of handicap or some sort of hardship, it was just automatically taken our life from their life, I hope we would be ecstatic about that situation. I hope we would praise God about that situation. But that isn't the case with the once blind man. After his healing encounters three groups of people who aren't showing any sign of being happy for him, they only have questions. And there's three main issues within these three groups of people which will draw out. First one is, is this man really the blind man? Is he really that guy? The second issue is the validity of his testimony, meaning what actually happened to change him. The final one is the issue of when this healing actually occurred, which we're going to find out it took place on the Sabbath. And what it reveals is there are going to be people who are going to come and challenge our faith. They're going to come and challenge our convictions. They're going to challenge our salvation. They're going to come and challenge our understanding of God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. They're going to come and challenge what we believe is found in God's Word. The first group emerges in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. We're going to be challenged by people who know us. We're going to be challenged by people who know us. And I don't mean just our name or where we work, but just they know us. In verses 8 through 12, the once blind man is doubted. Some actually thought he simply looked like the guy who was blind. So they're saying, well, now he's just a doppelganger of the blind man because he can obviously see. There were others in the crowd that said, no, I really, I think that's, that's him. I really think he's, he's been healed. And the blind man the entire time is like, yeah, I am who I am. It's me. I could see. I could see all of you. And this leads the crowd to want to know, well, how in the world could this happen? And the man says this. The man called Jesus. He made mud. He anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. That's in verse 11. And what we're going to find throughout this entire engagement with all these different groups of people is this man's testimony stays consistent. He says exactly what happened every single time he's asked, whether it's his neighbors, whether it's people who knew him, whether it's the religious leaders, or even his own family. He tells the same story every single time. He just delivers the facts And that's all we can do when we're challenged about our faith and our convictions is we just deliver the facts. We just lay aside, lay out the truth. I was once a sinner, but I came to understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for my sins. He rose again that I might be forgiven for my sins. And the Bible says if I placed my faith in him and him alone, I would find forgiveness and be given eternal life. Just stick to the truth. It doesn't have to be hard. Just tell them what happened in your life. No one can deny your testimony and your witness about what Jesus did for you. And that's all this blind man does. Matt, this is what Jesus told. This is what Jesus did. This is what he told me to do. That's what I did. Now I can see. Complete transformation with a simple testimony. But the crowds in verses 8 through 12 are skeptical. They're just not buying this man's story. So they decide, you know, here's the best thing we can do. 
The best thing we can do with this guy, who obviously is kind of confused, is we can take him to the Pharisees. Now, we know from chapter 7 and 8 that the Pharisees had an intention to want to kill Jesus. And so they've been gathered in the synagogue or the Sanhedrin. And so they're going to take this this crowd, these neighbors, these people who knew him, they're going to take him to these individuals who don't like Jesus. And so they're not going to want to hear what Jesus did for a particular individual. And this happens beginning in verse 13. And so the Pharisees proceed to interrogate this man to which he delivers his testimony in verse 15. He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Straight to the point. Again, the Pharisees don't like this man's response because they know the he that he's speaking of is Jesus, and they don't much care for Jesus. Pharisees issue wasn't so much that this man had been healed of his blindness, something that they seemed blind to be able to grasp, but the fact that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, there's no possible way that Jesus could be a man of God. He didn't keep the Sabbath. Now, when we're talking about keeping the Sabbath, we have to understand it's keeping their Sabbath regulations, their Sabbath rules. Let's let us know that this place is this healing on either late Friday night. The sun had already gone down. Because once the sun had set, it was considered the Sabbath, or it was on early Saturday morning. Now, the Pharisees didn't think that spitting was breaking the Sabbath. But the fact that Jesus bent down to get his spit in the mud and make the mud, that was work. That was work. And so he cannot be a man of God. He would have to be a sinner. And it tells us within these verses that the Pharisees were not all in agreement of this verdict, but it tells us also we will be challenged by people we respect. The Pharisees were the religious leaders to the Jewish people. The Jewish people who this blind man would have been looked up to them They looked to the Pharisees to teach them the word of God. They looked to the Pharisees to give them discernment on how they could live according to God's word. And here's a man who has never been allowed in the temple. He's now in the synagogue or the Sanhedrin, and he's being questioned about the authenticity of his sight being restored. And though he has never seen these men, this is the first time he's seen these men in his entire life, he would have grown up with the understanding these are individuals you respect because these are individuals who are to represent God. They were to be the men of God to the Jewish people. There are going to be people on our life, people in places of authority, people that we are commanded to in Scripture to show respect and honor to who are going to challenge our convictions and what we believe concerning the Word of God. This is clearly evident in our world today where a vocal minority wants everyone to agree or bend to their beliefs. Some of these individuals in our life are going to hold positions of power. They might be your boss. They might be a governing authority. But we see through the life of Daniel as God's people, we only bend the knee to God and his word. The Pharisees are divided. We're told in verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Now, again, as a reminder, in the Gospel of John, when you come across that phrase, the Jews, it's to note 
opponents of Jesus. This has been Pharisees and Sadducees, individuals who were opposed to Jesus' teaching and what Jesus is doing. But it also would combine those individuals who agreed with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. That, yeah, they got it figured out about Jesus. And so these are individuals who are against whatever Jesus is going to do. And since the Pharisees are so blind to see what is right before them, they figure the next best course of our action is this. Let's, let's get his parents in here. Let's bring mom and dad in. Let's ask them if this is in fact their son. And let's ask them if he was in fact born blind. I'm a parent and we got a lot of parents in here. We got a lot of grandparents in here. If your child or grandchild has some sort of hardship or handicap in their life, and they were completely healed. Would you not be overjoyed and run to their defense? But this man's parents, they come in, they're asked by the Pharisees, is this your son, verse 19, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So they ask him, will they claim him as their son? Was he in fact born blind? And were they willing to acknowledge the testimony that he has consistently been giving? And we're told in verse 22, they feared the Jews, the parents, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They are to be cast out. And in the Jewish mentality, that means they were going to be cast out of the presence of God. So the parents, they come to this situation, they understand the belief of the Jewish people, those who are in charge, the leaders, they understand that, okay, if we speak up for our son, then there could be trouble. And so they don't stick their neck out. They must have had an idea what was going to happen to their son because he kept saying the same thing. He told me to go to the pool of Siloam. He told me to wash, and then I could see. Well, the parents basically throw their son under the proverbial bus, verse 20 and 20, 21 and 23. Say that, ask him. We'll start in 21. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know how, who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age, he will speak for himself. In verse 23, therefore his parents said he will speak of himself, for himself because of their fear of the Jews. Basically looking at this group of people, they see their son who's been miraculously healed. They, they don't deny that he's, he's not their son. They don't deny that he had been born blind. And in an opportunity to come to their child's defense, they say, well, you know what? He's old enough to speak for himself. Why don't you ask him what happened? Which tells us we're going to be challenged by people we love. Here in a couple weeks, about two and a half to be exact, we're all going to gather around dinner tables with family and friends, and we're going to gain about 20 pounds in one meal. And some of y'all, I don't know what happens when your family gets together, but I have heard stories where people engage in political conversations in social issue conversations, in spiritual conversations, and sometimes those conversations can become quite heated. I know not every family that's here today, nor every family that belongs to Harvest Hill, is going to go sit with other family members who are also saved or who may not have the same value 
of their relationship with God as you do. But we have to understand if we're going to live with a conviction for the word of God, there are going to be people that we love, possibly people that we are related to, who aren't going to like it or fully understand it. Why do you go to church all the time? Why do you give money to the church? Why are you reading your Bible so much? Don't you listen to anything else but Christian? What, what's wrong with you? So we can't control what other people think about us or even how they respond to us. All we can control is our faith, our belief, and our convictions and what God has said. I was a sinner, saved by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ who rose from the grave. I have a relationship with God and the promise of eternal life. Stick to the truth. Getting nowhere with the parents, the Pharisees have to turn their attention back to the blind, once blind man in verse 24. The verdict that they have concluded is that Jesus is a sinner. Verse 24, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They're speaking of Jesus at this moment in time. This allows the healed man to bring a rebuttal. And he says there in verse 26, or verse 25, sorry, whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I See, and what a beautiful statement that again can be overlooked. It lets us know that this man who has been healed by Jesus really doesn't know a whole lot about Jesus. He hasn't grown up in the studying of the theological foundation of Jesus being the perfect son of God. He hasn't gotten a master's degree or a doctorate on Christology or, or who Jesus Christ was. He simply knows this is what Jesus has done for me and this is all that we need to know when it comes to our testimony. This is what Jesus did for me through the love of God. Well, the Pharisees continue your interrogation, verse 26, and I love the man's response of verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? These are the Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus, and he's like, hey, maybe you want to join the group. Man, what, what courage and boldness in this moment for this man who's on the threat of being kicked out of the temple when he's never been able to go to the temple until this moment. His sight has been restored. And I don't know if he's getting aggravated at this moment. I mean, I would. I think we all would. Something God did miraculously in our life and people keep just interrogating us about it. Like, look, this is what happened. I can't, I don't, he did it. This is it. I can't give you anything else. But what this man says in verse 27 finally pushes the Pharisees' eruption button beginning in verse 28. They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Verse 30, the man answered, why is this an amazing thing? You don't know where he comes from, and yet... He opened my eyes. We know, and now he's bringing them into the whole conversation. This is what our belief is. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And this is what Jesus has been saying all the way since chapter 7 and 8. He came not to glorify himself, but to glorify the Father. And this blind man, who is yet to see Jesus physically, is already getting it. If he wasn't from God, he couldn't do it. So I don't know. I, I mean, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. <laughs> this man has been completely restored. he no longer be considered an outcast to the Jewish people. When he received his sight, he could go back into the temple and worship instead of sitting along the road and begging. Here's a man who would have had to have some idea of what his parents knew, which was revealed back in verse 22. It had to have been the word on the street about their views of Jesus Christ, and if anybody would, would, would say that he is in fact the Christ, that they would be cast out. He may not have been able to see what was going around before he was healed, but he could obviously hear it. And here's the thing, he was unwilling to change his testimony because he had a conviction in what Jesus Christ did for him, which also meant he was, being, he was willing to be cast out. We will be challenged by people who can inflict harm. That might not be physical harm, it might be emotional harm. It might be mental harm. It might be financial. It might be harm in your job place. It might be harm of not getting that promotion. It might be harm of not getting that pay raise. This man was willing to take the harm of the Pharisees because he knew and was convicted about the power of Jesus. He had been completely tra transformed by Jesus, and he had been given a new life that was laying in front of him. There was no way, no matter who was talking to him, interrogating him, or asking him questions, that he was going to deny what happened to him. And we have to have the same conviction as God's people. There's obvious a story that we can learn a lot from, but if it ended here, it would be a sad story. And thankfully it doesn't because Jesus comes back on the scene in verse 35. It must have been the talk of the town. Man, did you hear about that blind guy I can now see? Did you hear the Pharisees cast him out? He can no longer go to the temple. He can't go to the synagogue to hear the word of God. He's more alone now than he was before. And Jesus must have been hearing, hearing these stirrings. And we have to keep in mind, until we get to verse 35, this man had only heard of Jesus. He never actually physically seen him. Verse 35 through 38, Jesus heard they had cast him out and having found him said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Look at this man's response. He said, Lord, which means master, I believe. And he worshiped him. So back in chapter 8, we had a group of people who believed, but they didn't worship Jesus or abide in his word. They questioned him. And this man heard the instructions of Christ, went through all this ordeal. He finally sees him face to face. It's the revelation from the voice of Christ. And he says he believed, and his belief turned to worship. Well, the Pharisees just can't seem to stay away from Jesus. 
Because there's some that are around in the area who begin eavesdropping. And they hear what Jesus is saying. Look in verse 30. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And for those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And there's a couple things that Jesus is doing here. In verse 39, Jesus is saying he's the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. Because in the prophecies of Isaiah, it says that only the Messiah would be able to bring sight back to the blind. And as the Pharisees listen in, they're starting to wonder if Jesus is saying that they are blind. To which Jesus lays down some truth in verse 41. In the simplest terms, Jesus is saying, if you couldn't see the truth, then you would be without guilt. But since you see, since you have heard, and since you have come to some understanding of the truth and have not accepted it, you are guilty. The final thing we learn from this whole encounter in chapter 9 is we will be challenged by the one who loves us. Unlike the neighbors, the Pharisees, the parents of this once man who was blind, we are going to be challenged by God. We're going to be challenged by Jesus. We're going to be challenged by the Holy Spirit, but in a good way. God challenges us through his word, through the conviction of his spirit, through the teaching of his word, through the understanding of his word, so that we might be sanctified and transformed more into his likeness. And since all people were originally created in the image of God, but sin has corrupted that image, God has sent salvation And what salvation means is we're restored back to a relationship with God so God can sanctify us or set us apart and transform us back into the image we were originally created to be. For us here today, we all need to understand that Jesus came back to restore sight to the blind. And we're not talking about physical blindness. We're talking about spiritual blindness. And this is what he's pointing out to this group of Pharisees who are listening in. Spiritual blindness keeps us from seeing and accepting what we need, and that is forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life found only through Jesus Christ. And that's why we preach the gospel. I mentioned God created you for a relationship with him, but it is our sin that separates us from that relationship. And we can't be good enough. We can't do enough good things. It is only by the complete work of Jesus Christ who lived a life perfect according to the word of God. He died on the cross for the sins of the world, taking the full wrath of God upon him for my sins and for your sins. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later to show he has the power over death, the authority to forgive sins, and grant eternal life. And the Bible says when we believe in our heart to that to be true, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. Saved from our sins and saved for eternal life. This is what the blind man came to believe. He didn't understand everything about Jesus. Never seen him before in his life. He couldn't tell you if he was a sinner or not. But he knew what Jesus was able to do for him. And he wouldn't back down about sharing it. But if you're here this morning and you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask Nick and Anybody else coming with you, Nick? All right, the whole posse to come on up. They're going to leave us, lead us in a song of invitation. The song is Jesus paid it all because that is what, in fact, he did. And if you're here this morning and you need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. But maybe you're going through a challenge in this moment. And understanding that God uses these challenges so we can 
sharpen our faith. We can work out our faith with fear and trembling so we have a deeper conviction to be able to share what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day and for your love and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness and your salvation. Lord, I thank you for the testimony of this blind man who once was blind, how he just shared the facts. His story wasn't elaborate. It was just straight to the point. Lord, thank you for saving us. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning that needs to be saved, needs to begin a relationship with you found through your son, I pray that the spirit will come upon them and they will walk down this aisle. And today would become the day of their salvation. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.